0: We interrupt this broadcast with some important news Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week
1: It's time time time
2: for Taiwan Taiwan This Week
1: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week With me your host Gavin Phipps And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator Brian Hugh Thanks for having me And Michael Fahey Great to see you, Gavin. Tonight, we'll be discussing questions and concerns about a possible visit to Taiwan by US House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. President Tsai Ing wen holding a teleconference with the Czech Republic's newly elected president and talk there of a possible in person meeting. China lifting a ban on imports of 63 products from Taiwan food and beverage producers. The Central Epidemic Command Center failing to announce a relaxation of the indoor face mask regulations. And Jeremy Lin's pending arrival in Taiwan tomorrow to play pro basketball here after joining the Plus League's Kaohsiung Steelers. But we'll begin with former Vice President Chen Jien-ren assuming his new post as Premier and his new cabinet being sworn in on Tuesday of this week. The swearing in ceremony marked the conclusion of what is best described as not being such a major shake-up as some pundits have been predicting prior to the Lunar New Year holiday. Now Minister of Justice Tsai Ching-sheng, Economics Minister Wang Mei-hua, Minister of Labour Xu Ming-chun, Health Minister Minister Xue Rui Yuen, Transport Minister Wang Guo and Education Minister Pan Wenjong all kept their jobs. The Digital, Environment, Agriculture, and Veteran Affairs Council ministers all remain in their posts, as do the heads of the Council of Indigenous People, the Hacker Affairs Council, the Central Bank, and the Financial Supervisory Commission. Foreign Minister Joseph Wu and Defence Minister Cho Guo Chung also managed to keep their jobs. However, former Jilong Mayor Lin Yul-chung has been appointed Interior Minister, while Shi Jura has taken over as Culture Minister. There have also been some new faces put in the Mainland Affairs Council, and while Minister Cho Tai San remains in office, former Straits Exchange Foundation Vice Chairman Jan Jo Hong has been appointed Deputy MAC Minister, while Roy Lee has been appointed Deputy Foreign Minister. So, I guess the takeaway of all that, if you happen to be the President, is that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But some may disagree there. And what happened to all the the talk of course of taiwan's top envoy to the united states shall be kim replacing joseph wu so brian not a big shake up some have been expecting one and of course joseph keeps his job and if it ain't broke don't fix it is probably tying win's policy there
2: yeah, I think so. And so there's not actually a big shakeup there. It's mostly many same returning faces. And so this is changing Chen Jianren as the premier, and some new people are in place, such as Simon San as the vice premier. And so that is putting a new face on this cabinet, but I, it indicates continuity in terms of not only defense and foreign relations and cross-strait relations, but also uh, the economy and so forth. And so this is after the defeats the DPP suffered in the November 901 elections. At the same time, Despite the fact that there's blowback against the DPP regarding the economy and so forth, uh, that uh, voters weren't happy with sluggish economic growth and uh, not seeing the results trickle down to them, this doesn't actually indicate too much of a change in direction, just putting kind of a new face on, on this, the cabinet.
1: What about the rumor about Shelby Kim, though?
2: Yeah, that's right. And so uh, the rumor was that then she would replace Joseph Wu and would come back to Taiwan. But uh, it is thought that the DPP would prefer her to remain in place in Washington, D.C. to reassure regarding William Lai, because of the fact that he's likely to be the next presidential candidate. And there are fears that he is perhaps dangerously pro-independence.
1: Which could be a problem, I guess, Michael.
2: William Lai and independence?
0: (laughs) I don't think so. Uh, William Lai is deeply in the mainstream of the DPP. Uh, He did make a perhaps injudicious statement when he was premier about being a pragmatic worker for Taiwanese independence. (laughs) But really, if you put it in the context of existing, the, the DPP platform, Article 1 says that the objective of the DPP is to create a Republic of Taiwan. But then in 1999, they limited that by setting saying that the procedure for doing anything like that would require the consent of the Taiwanese people. And Lai is completely consistent with those positions and not very much different from Tai Ing-wen
1: at all. And so, Michael, what do you think of the cabinet mini-mini reshuffle and any interesting names that came in there?
0: Well, I agree with Brian. I think fundamentally this is a caretaking cabinet for Tsai Ing-wen's <coughs> last year in office. Uh, the one person that I thought was, well, there was one thing that was interesting was that uh, the Sioux cabinet only had four women as ministers, and the new cabinet now is up to eight, which is about 15%, a slight improvement. Uh, but the most interesting person for me on the cabinet is Shi Zhe, the former uh Uh, head of uh, culture down in Kaohsiung. Uh, He's really an interesting character because uh, he marks a generational shift. He was a participant, although not a leader, in the Wild Lily movement. Uh, He was a protege of Chen Zhu for many years and was deeply involved in Han uh, Guoyu's, the referendum against Han Guoyu that brought him out of office. And so perhaps he's getting his reward uh, now. And he's also interesting because he is part of a trend that we're seeing in the Tsai government, which is that you don't have to have a fancy degree from a foreign university anymore to be a minister at the central government level. Uh, the vast majority now do not. He was a mere uh, information science major at Donghai University and uh, got into his position for what he did uh, later. So there's a general trend to localization in the educational backgrounds of ministers, and he's really representative of it.
1: Or maybe the government's trying to veer away from controversial MAs than the word plagiarism.
0: <laughs> that is possibly a consideration. <laughs>
1: Yeah, though
2: there is a the concern about that uh, the, some of the artworks he was uh, oversaw had plagiarism charges against them. So I guess that still comes up with the art establishment. But I think it's one of those cases in which uh, the Pan Blue camp has had a reaction to that because of the fact that uh, they usually do are critical of people that are more emphatic on pro-Taiwan or uh, Taiwanese culture and so forth. I mean, there's this kind of contestation within the cultural establishment and it reflects the broader contestation in Taiwanese society.
1: And, of course, Michael, people in Kaohsiung have been celebrating this, or not celebrating, I mean, jumping up and down, but there have been comments that maybe his promotion to a cabinet post could be good for the city.
0: I think that's a reasonable expectation, just as the previous Minister of Culture, uh, who came from the uh, Hakka Affairs Committee, made a special... Mm, emphasis during his administration on Hakka cultural matters. I think it's reasonable for people in southern Taiwan to expect that uh, he will continue to support the many projects that he started down in Kaohsiung and elsewhere in southern Taiwan while he's in office.
2: Yeah, that's right. Because I think particularly with the DPP having kind of, for example, lost Kaohsiung with Hangzhou, since then there's been the attempt to kind of really reassure the South that it's the traditional stronghold of the pan-green camp, but also trying to reassure the South that, well, we don't take you for granted, for example. And So I think appointing someone that is having a kind of more Southern background is, is part of that, too.
1: And Brian, what about the new premier, the former vice president, Qin Jinren?
2: Yeah, so this is interesting as well, because Su Chen Chang is out, and he was the longest serving premier in Taiwan since uh, democratization. Uh, Chen Jianren was seen as perhaps a candidate to run for president because Tsai did not really like William Lai because of the fact that Lai challenged uh, her in the lead up to 2020 elections. And so Chen Jianren, uh, Zheng Wen-chan and Ling Jia-long were seen as possible people that Tsai would prefer to run instead. Uh, And... Chen Ziering historically was not actually a part of the DPP, but he joined the lead-up to the last set of elections. And it was thought at that time that perhaps he would take up the position of health minister to replace Chen shih who would be running for Taipei mayor. But that didn't happen. And so now he is instead the premier. Uh, and so, particularly Tsai has emphasized that the new cabinet will fight inflation. It will also be focused on post-COVID recovery. Chen Ziering is, of course, an epidemiologist and led Taiwan's response to SARS. And so... Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those things where the face has changed and so forth, but uh, it is someone that size trusts, trust. And so I think it also consolidating power in that respect. Brian,
0: I, I seem to remember that uh, just a day or two ago, he said that this was going to be his last public office, Gongzhi. Do you interpret that as meaning that he's not going to run for president?
2: Um, it's one of those questions. I mean, I feel like everyone says that, but then perhaps they will take it back. But then sometimes it does come back to haunt people when they make these kind of statements. So I would say, you know, never, never say never in politics, I guess.
1: <laughs> but of course, Brian, of course, the sort of pan blue leaning newspapers have been using the words like secondment because of course, he didn't actually quit his job in academia to take over the premiership. He said he took time out. To do it,
2: yeah, it, it's one of those odd things. I mean, even uh, for example, uh, Chen Ming Tong, the previous uh, head of the National Security Bureau, still had a teaching position at NTU, which is a bit puzzling. And then he came in under scrutiny for plagiarism. There calls to remove him and so forth. But uh, he was, it, I think, it's it's kind of common. I mean, even Ko returned to, for example, the uh, National Taiwan University Hospital as of late uh, after the end of his mayorship.
1: And Michael, I mean, how do you see the manner of Chen Zhenren and Su Jung Chang playing out? Because of course, they have different mannerisms.
0: Oh, they have completely different personalities and styles. <laughs> uh, Su Jen Chang I think, was extremely useful to Tsai uh, Ing-wen as kind of a, a lightning rod and somebody who was, you know, up there in the legislator shouting down uh, people. And he's very aggressive and, and chong, chong, chong was uh, <laughs> go, go, go was his slogan. Chen Jianren is uh, a pretty mellow guy, and I expect to be far less confrontational. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think so. And so it's one of those things. I mean, I kind of wonder about that. Um, some of Tsai's early premieres, for example, Chen was a little too academic and sometimes made statements that really rubbed the public the wrong way. And so tin Tianren actually did not, as vice president, when he was previously vice president, did not actually have to really uh, talk to the public as directly as I think he will have to as premier. So I think it is a question what his persona will be like going forward. Uh, he has made a show of bipartisanship uh, saying that the mayors of Taipei, of the six major municipalities, should cooperate and establish a platform for dialogue and so forth. Uh, but it's a question if that will happen. And I think particularly Su Zhejiang was so effective because he could make up for Tsai's weaknesses in the sense that he could be very aggressive. And he's a very good orator and Tsai is not really. And so I kind of wonder then about uh, Chen Jiren, how, how that kind of pairing will work out
1: Moving on now, and news that US House Speaker Kevin McCarthy could visit Taiwan later this year is sparking fresh concerns here about Beijing carrying out more military actions in retaliation to such a visit, and military actions that could be an escalation of those seen after former Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the island last August. Now, reports say the Pentagon is preparing for a McCarthy visit sometime in the spring. McCarthy, of course, previously pledged to visit Taiwan if he became a House Speaker. Taiwan's top envoy in the United States, Xiao Bi Kim, is being cited as saying that any decision by McCarthy to travel to Taiwan will be his to make, and she went on to tell reporters this week to say that ultimately the people of Taiwan have welcomed visitors from around the world. Of course, Xiao is not in a position to either tell McCarthy not to come, or to point out that maybe he should take into consideration how the people of Taiwan, and not solely the government, feel about him actually coming here, as that decision of course is ultimately for President Tsai Ying-wen to make. There's the question also as to why McCarthy would come to Taiwan and whether it would be solely for his own U.S. domestic standing. And, of course, the cost of such a visit will ultimately be felt by the people of Taiwan and not by someone who lives several thousand kilometres away, Michael.
0: Well, there's. Uh, I have a lot of mixed feelings about this potential visit. Uh, however, I think that there's not really a clear way out of it. Uh, McCarthy needs to come to Taiwan to show that he's at least as tough as Pelosi and the Democrats are on China. Uh, Taiwan is in the position that it welcomed Pelosi, a Democrat, and it can't really say no to a Republican when the Republicans have long-term been friends to Taiwan. Uh, And I don't think that Taiwan wants to be in the position of uh, showing that it's intimidated by China and not welcoming people. Uh, So it's a very difficult decision. Uh, On the one hand, I think that uh, it's pretty clear now that the military exercises that surrounded Taiwan – After the Pelosi visit had been long planned in advance, and the Pelosi visit was simply a pretext. China is going to do exercises like that when it feels like it, whether or not McCarthy comes. What I don't like about it is that Taiwan is getting drawn deeper and deeper into domestic U.S. politics. This is now turning into a game of who's tougher on China, the Democrats or the Republicans. And I think that. This is a situation that Taiwan cannot control and could easily get out of control for Taiwan with all kinds of unforeseen consequences.
2: Yeah, that's right. And so it is quite interesting because with the Pelosi visit, there was a leak ahead of time that she would be coming to Taiwan. And there's reports initially that she'd be coming to Taiwan, but then she got COVID and could not come. And then eventually she came. But then that gave China the pretext to prepare and conduct military exercises. And so there was also a leak to the Financial Times. Uh, there are a number of sources there. And so that can come from people that did not want the visit to happen, for example, and on the US side, viewing this as too dangerous. And there was again a leak this time. Uh, it's a question if that is again from the US side or even from Taiwan, in the sense that there may be people in the uh, administration that hope for McCarthy to come to Taiwan. And so that's why they got out here, because then uh, he will seem weak if he does not actually come this time. And so now we may see more exercised by China. China also has to look tough where this is uh, concerned. Uh, but it is an attempt to show that, yeah, he is as tough as Pelosi, and it is about U.S. domestic politics. There will not be substantive things that come out of this necessarily. It may be more symbolic. And so there's a debate now regarding substantive versus symbolic. Which one is better for Taiwan?
0: Yeah, Brian, when, one thing I really don't like about this is that uh, Taiwan, it seems to me, is largely gaining symbolic capital mm-hmm. from these visits. Yeah. These visits are symbols. They don't really change anything or do anything substantive beyond beyond the fact that... It's true that whenever you've actually visited a country, uh, you may have a more concrete sense of what it is and take more interest in it. But on the other hand, what has China gotten out of it? Something very substantive. It's fundamentally changed the status quo uh, regarding the incursions over the median line, which didn't happen before the Pelosi uh, visit or happened very rarely.
2: Yeah, that's right. And so uh, that's the thing. I mean, just uh, there's this increasing debate now regarding symbolic versus substantive in, in terms of U.S.-Taiwan relations that uh, oftentimes you do have these symbolic uh, shows of support for Taiwan, but there's not an arms deal or a free trade agreement or anything like that coming out of this. And so uh, one provokes China, I mean, with regards to symbolic shows of support. I mean, there's also, for example, changing the names of representative offices and so forth. And this gives China a pretext to conduct military exercises that are aimed at training for a future uh, military action. And so then, and the question then is, what does actually Taiwan get out of this? Uh, I actually do think that has an effect in terms of discourse and in terms of the uh, faith that the Taiwanese public has in the US, actually. I think that is quite concrete outcome of this, that The public is much more convinced that the U.S. will actually stand up for Taiwan after the Pelosi visit because of the fact, the view is that the U.S. is willing to risk repercussions from China to show support for Taiwan. And so I think that is demonstrable. But uh, it is a question then. I mean, what does actually Taiwan get out of it? And I think that uh, is a question that people should ask more, actually.
1: So, Michael, what does Taiwan get out of it? And do you think that the regular Joe Blow or Jane Blow in Taiwan, who simply want to get on with their lives, don't want to have to go, oh, my God, it's Armageddon?
0: Well, I think you're raising a very interesting point there, Gavin. Uh, I think that the Pelosi visit was actually largely popular in Taiwan. And we all saw that people responded to the... uh, blockade basically that occurred and the missiles flying over Taiwan with a great deal of calm. Uh, it was nothing like back in 1996 when the missile crisis happened and there was a wave of immigration out of Taiwan. I, my, For me, the best barometer of where the Taiwanese people are is what hoyo e thinks. Uh, the mayor of uh, New Taipei City. He really seems to have his finger on the center of the political spectrum. And he he said that uh, Taiwan welcomes any foreign guests to come to Taiwan and take a look. But peace with China is the most important thing. Uh, So typically, he's not really saying one or the other, but he's not saying McCarthy don't come. Uh, And I think the vast majority of the Taiwanese people are fine with McCarthy coming if the government thinks it's a good idea if they didn't think it was a good idea and they were truly worried there's no reason they couldn't come out on the street and protest in large numbers and maybe force the government to change i'm not seeing that happen so i think that most people in taiwan are okay with these visits despite the costs and the risks
1: but brian i mean if, if beijing does get a bit bullshy if mccarthy comes do you think the public could go hey hang on a minute Hang on a minute, next time maybe the government should think about this and there could be a backlash against the Thai administration.
2: Uh, Yeah, I think so. I mean, sometimes this is the rhetoric coming out of the Pan Blue camp. I mean, particularly more from the deep blues. But uh, it is interesting Then I think that is actually uh, how the public feels. And so I think what is actually important to note is there's a perception gap between within Taiwan and outside of it. uh, That is not only in terms of risk assessment, in the sense that people did not react to the military exercises. I mean, that was intended at training for a blockade. But there's not the sense of threat that there was in past decades, whereas a lot of international media was really freaking out. And so even with uh, whenever China just regularly deploys planes to around Taiwan and so forth, and this is very regular now, sometimes international media will react as though this is some kind of new escalation when it is actually now quite common. Uh, But then in regards to the visit, I mean, that's also one of those things, that much as the world went on about how it's dangerously provocative China and could lead to uh, repercussions and dangerous escalation, many in Taiwan welcomed it because of the fact that it was seen as a sort of support.
1: And staying with other news from foreign affairs this week, President Tsai Ing-wen extended her congratulations to the Czech Republic's newly elected president, Petra Pavel, during a teleconference on Monday. Now, according to the presidential office, Tsai told Pavel that the people of Taiwan and the Czech Republic enjoy deep ties and share the values of freedom, democracy and human rights. And based on that, the government of Taiwan looks forward to deepening exchanges and cooperation with the Czech Republic in key areas. Those key areas included semiconductor design, talent cultivation, in cutting-edge technology, Technologies and supply chain restructuring. Now, that phone call led to talk, especially by the foreign minister's new spokesman, Jeff Leo, who told reporters on Tuesday that Pavel suggested an in-person meeting with Sy. And reports have gone on to say that such a meeting could take place at the Forum 2000 conference in Prague. However, neither side has confirmed that. So, Brian, of course, she spoke to Donald Trump and now she's speaking to Petra <laughs> Pavel, who, of course, are rather different types of people.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so it is touted as another diplomatic breakthrough for the Tsai administration. And it's a narrative, I think, that one often hears in Taiwanese politics of diplomatic breakthroughs advancing the international space that Taiwan has and so forth. And so... Thai, for example, has come under fire from the Pan Blue camp for losing diplomatic allies and so forth, but then strengthening ties with other countries, uh, taking these phone calls or, or uh, you know conducting diplomatic relations in this way, that's then touted as an accomplishment. And so this comes after uh, several years of warming ties between the Czech Republic and Taiwan. I mean, there was previously the visit by the Senate president and the mayor of Prague uh, that came after Prague broke relations with Beijing and developed more sister city relations with Taipei. Uh, but also, it actually also has to do with Czech domestic politics and that the previous president was much more uh, accommodating towards Russia and China. And so now the new president is more pro-Western, pro-Ukrainian. Uh, as a result, then, this is uh, a sign of the kind of shifting ties. And one saw this previously, too, with Eastern European countries such as Lithuania, that uh, showing support for Taiwan is a way to signal alignment with NATO and Western powers and the U.S. over Russia and China.
0: Gavin, this move, this call is consistent with what is actually the thai administration's foreign policy the thai administration is not going to say that we don't care about our remaining diplomatic allies but the truth is they don't care what they care about and their first priority was having great relations with their most important true allies who are japan and the united states And since then, they've been able to develop new unofficial but very substantive ties with the democracies of Eastern Europe, starting with uh, Lithuania in particular and a new Taiwan representative office there, named the Taiwan representative office, Uh, and now the Czech Republic. Uh, An in-person meeting, although I think a bit unlikely, would be frosting on the cake as far as the (laughs) thai administration if thai could go to europe uh in front of the whole taiwan public i think it would set a capstone on her in my opinion very successful
2: foreign policy
1: and if she went to prague brian she could go to other european cities
2: that's right and there'd be a lot of speculation regarding that i mean previously joseph wu went on a tour of europe and so he traveled to a number of countries and it was not always announced what uh, countries he was going to ahead of time but uh That was seen as another kind of diplomatic win for the Tsai administration. I mean, uh, the Czech Republic, there's already a lot of investment going on with Taiwan, uh, major electronics companies and so forth. And so there's a lot of avenues for cooperation there. But then I think particularly uh, the Tsai administration, I mean, building ties with European countries and EU countries. That's another kind of front there for its uh, diplomatic policy.
1: Of course, Michael, this comes as there's concern that Honduras and Paraguay could be severing ties with Taiwan. Who cares? (laughs) Simple as that from Michael there.
0: But I think that uh, it's also worth noting that Poland is the featured country in the Taipei International Book Fair, which is going on right now. And there's even been some talk that uh, there may be improving ties with Slovenia in the not-too-distant future. Now, at the moment, uh, what I hear is that Slovenia is angling for a a non-permanent seat on the Security Council. So it's got everything possible with Taiwan on hold. But look at Slovenia in the future as well. There are other possibilities.
2: Yeah, that's right. And so building ties, cultural ties with Eastern European countries, that's another kind of interesting thing, uh, particularly when there are shows of support from Lithuania or other countries, then there's a lot of cultural interests in Taiwan regarding that. I mean, for example, bars in Taiwan that were saying Lithuanian alcohol so they were very popular. And so with Poland, I mean, there is the Witcher author was in, in Taipei. And so that's another kind of, you know, well-known uh, IP from Poland. And so uh, I think oftentimes then the uh, it's interesting how cultural and diplomatic policy and also economic policy dovetail in this way.
0: I did say, who cares about Honduras and Paraguay? But when (laughs) relations with Honduras and Paraguay do inevitably break down, I hope that Taiwan will be big enough not to cut off all the scholarships and foreign aid that it's giving those countries who do really need it. And just because they are not diplomatic allies anymore doesn't mean that Taiwan needs to be petty and punish students or, or people who are beneficiaries of Taiwan's excellent aid programs.
1: And on that note, we have to take a short break, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and China announced the lifting of its ban on 63 products from Taiwanese food and beverage producers this week. Beijing, of course, suspended the imports of thousands of food and beverage items made in Taiwan last year, because the vendors failed to comply with new registration requirements. Now, according to the Food and Drug Administration, the lifting of the import ban covers 879 food and beverage items made in Taiwan, which have now been registered under the new system and approved for import. However, the FDA says data shows that 200. 11 other items remain banned despite their producers submitting documentation in compliance with China's new registration system, and some 2,000 items will no longer be exported to China simply because the suppliers here well, they are refusing to comply with Beijing's new registration process. Now, far from cheering Beijing's lifting of the said ban, the Mainland Affairs Council told reporters this week that the move was a political manoeuvre, Michael.
0: Well, look at who went and got the ban lifted. You had the new head of the (laughs) Taiwan Affairs Office, Song Tao, make an imperial visit to Xiamen. And there he met Hong Xiu Zhu, the deposed candidate of the KMT back in 2016, and the county commissioner of Jinmen, who a few years ago said that... uh, China and Taiwan were as close as family, and he wanted to work towards realizing the China dream. Hong Xiu Zhu, uh, after having been deposed as the KMT nominee, I think last year was it, actually went on a tour of Xinjiang where she praised <laughs> policies there. So look at these emissaries from Taiwan. They are far out of the political and, and opinion mainstream. What China is showing is that it can cut off these economic ties at any moment and it can turn them back on if the right people are asking nicely
2: yeah, absolutely. And so Hong xiu was also at the Beijing Olympics, and uh, China quite really likes her at the moment. Uh, she is also the only Taiwanese politician that Xi Jinping ever referred to with the formal you in, in Mandarin, Ning. And so uh, the the uh, this the kind of negotiation, the KMT is relying on these uh, the old tactic there of saying that we're the only party that can actually negotiate with China, and so this is why you should elect us. But then in this case, I mean, Hong is very far from the party leadership at the moment. Uh, it is interesting. I mean, China is targeting substitutable goods from Taiwan, not actually goods that it needs for its own supply chains. Intermediate goods such as semiconductors and so forth. Uh, alcohol is a, a good that has a high symbolic value. Targeting Tsing Ma Galiang or Taiwan beer, there's a kind of representativeness there. Uh, other goods targeted include from major conglomerates like Unit President, uh also Taihu, the craft beer brand which is trying to expand in the Chinese market. And so uh, it is it is not surprising that that China would actually target this, but uh, it's it's also a question regarding then pivoting towards other markets. And so. It is a it is a case in which now China has backed away from this, but uh, it might also target other goods in the future.
0: I, Ryan, I think you're completely right to be focusing on this uh, gap between the symbolic and and the real. Jinmen Gaoliang is a marquee product, no question <laughs> about it. It's, it's one of the most well-known brands in Taiwan. Uh, in 2021, it had record... Total overall sales of about 11 billion NT. However, in 2019, its branch in Xiamen, which I believe is main where its business in China is mainly centered, only sold 253 million NT worth of Gaoliang. It's not really an important market. This is more, far more symbolic. And and again, Hong Xiaoju and the, the county commissioner of Jinmen are on the far right, deep blue of the KMT. They are very far away from uh, the kind of candidates who have any viable chance of winning in Taiwan. But it does show uh, people like Ho Yo-i, is a viable candidate, that if he makes nice to China, perhaps re-recognizes the 1992 consensus, goodies can flow from China.
1: And Veronica was... The 2,000 items no longer being exported to China, of course. That's a lot of items. But, of course, it came, when, when China banned these products, it came out that a lot of these companies were basically refusing to fill in the forms because they were scared that China was going to steal their product by taking all the ingredients and making them themselves.
2: That's right. And so there's also the concern about uh, technology transfer in uh, regarding technology and semiconductors and so forth in these industries, but also regarding food. I mean, one sees similar concerns. And so uh, there's that. I mean, there's also concern about then, for example, uh, China... For example, not being a risky market. I mean, this actually might dissuade some uh, products or companies from actually investing in the Chinese market because the fact is they might be targeted unpredictably. Uh, but I think particularly with regards to Galiang for example, it is actually kind of interesting in the Jingmen context, uh, because of the fact that it's such an important good, and many people have investments by purchasing Galiang and, and so forth. I mean, there's literally a political party called the Galiang Party. And so I kind of wonder about the attempt to pressure outlying islands of Taiwan economically regarding key goods. And this is maybe one way to actually kind of sway them politically. And, and uh, there's always a concern about what happens if outlying islands diverge from the rest of Taiwan politically. And so I think uh, the, the economic means targeting them is uh, the symbolic actually might have some effect there. And so that's some. some I find a bit concerning.
1: And moving away from China now, and the Central Epidemic Command Centre on Thursday failed to announce an easing of the government's indoor face mask mandate, as had been expected. That after Centre spokesman Ren Rengsheng told reporters earlier this week that such a move was pending. Now, Centre head Victor Wong says the new policy is still being reviewed and will be delayed slightly due to three main factors. Those factors include a rise in hospital bed occupancy after the Lunar New Year holiday, and despite many of those hospitalisations, not being coronavirus related, there is concern about a slight tightening of available hospital capacity. The second factor is that easing the mass mandate will affect multiple sectors of society and therefore needs to be adequately communicated beforehand. While well, the third factor being cited for the delay by the Central Epidemic Command Centre head basically is due to a rebound in the number of cases in recent days because of underreporting during the Lunar New Year holiday. Meanwhile, the Epidemic Command Centre on Wednesday announced that the government is working toward downgrading the coronavirus from a Category 5 to a Category 4 communicable disease by May or June. Now that statement came amid reports the World Health Organisation is expected to downgrade its coronavirus alert level in late May, while Japan and the United States have decided to lift their national coronavirus emergency declarations in the first half of May. Now, under Taiwan's Communicable Disease Control Act, diseases with a Category 5 classification require the government to formulate preventive and control measures or preparedness plans due to their potential to have a substantial impact on the health of the population, while Category 4 communicable diseases only require monitoring of their occurrence or implementation of preventive and control measures. So, Michael, we were all thinking we can take our face masks off, but we can't do that indoors at the moment. But... It could be downgraded from a category five to a category four.
0: Well, I wasn't thinking that I was going to be able to take off my mask indoors anytime soon. <laughs> Gavin, the. Uh, way to read many of these Taiwanese government announcements when they say that we're going to make an announcement about indoor masks at the end of February and then they change by the end of January. And then they changed it to we're going to make an announcement yesterday. What they're saying is, is that we might make an announcement on it, depending on what the situation is at that time. And for the moment, we're trying to see what people think of that idea. I think that there's not, I know that some listeners of this program are very eager to see the mask mandate uh, lifted, and I personally find the indoor mask mandate a bit silly at the moment because you constantly find yourself in a packed restaurant in Taipei where the only people wearing masks are the people waiting the tables and the employees, (laughs) and then you have, you know, all all these people at close contact. But... I don't think the Taiwanese public is in an enormous hurry to end the mask mandate. We see that with the outdoor mask mandate, which has been lifted for weeks now. And still 90, 95 percent of people are complying with uh, or still wearing their masks at all time. And we're going to see that after the indoor mask is, uh, uh, mandate is lifted uh, as well. As for downgrading. I'll just say that it's quite interesting that Japan has already said that it's going to downgrade in May. If Japan does it in May, I would guess Taiwan will do it in June.
2: <laughs> I think that's right. And so oftentimes uh, Taiwan is looking at other countries in the region to offer precedence uh, to avoid being attacked. And I think it's uh, one of those things in which oftentimes these announcements that keep being rescheduled, they're actually trial balloons to see what is going on and with the public and how they feel about ideas. But uh, even with the lifting of uh, indoor restrictions and so forth, I mean, most people will probably still comply with the mask mandate anyway. And that's, uh, I think, something else the government is aware of at this point and also takes into account when it does make these uh, shifting regulations.
1: Of Of course, Michael pointed out that you no longer have to wear a face mask outside. But, I mean, I walk out my house to the local shops and maybe one person doesn't have a mask on.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Absolutely. And so most people are still wearing masks outdoors uh, within some places. I mean, where I live in Wanghua, actually, a lot of people do not wear masks and never have actually through a pandemic, despite that being the first (laughs) hotspot. Well, just to be devil's advocate for a
0: moment, I say, why lift the mask mandate? It's... Possibly the it's it's popular with the people. It doesn't it's not really that burdensome to most people in Taiwan, Uh, even myself, who had trouble with it at first am now simply in the habit of taking a mask out with me every time I leave the house. It reminds people that covid still exists. And it's one of the few reminders, at least for myself personally, that keeps me aware that this is an ongoing pandemic and there are 76 people died yesterday uh if you have vulnerable older people in your household it's a real concern
2: so i say keep the
0: mask mandate
2: it's a good reminder yeah and i think uh even if it is relaxed indoors it's probably that for mass transport and so forth as in earlier stages of the pandemic uh that it will remain and so wearing masks will probably still take place on the mrt and so forth
0: and another example of how Taiwan is following other countries, it's important to be aware that the when the mask, indoor mask mandate is lifted, Taiwan is planning to follow the Korean example, which is a positive list of places where you will still have to wear masks indoors. So I would expect the MRT, possibly schools up to a certain age uh, and certain other locations.
1: Of course, that's what, when you go outside, Michael, of course, you, you might as well just wear a mask if you've got to put it on when you go shopping or to the MRT.
0: Precisely. Yeah, I think so too. You'll just forget it otherwise.
1: And I've done that a few times. I've, in fact, walked out of my house several times when I should have been wearing a mask, got down the road and gone, oh, I better turn around and quickly go <laughs> home. That's right. (laughs) Anyway, before we go this week, Jeremy Lin is set to arrive in Taiwan tomorrow after signing with the Plus League's Kaohsiung 17 Live Steelers. Now, taken to social media this week, Lin said he hopes that he can play his first game on February the 12th, and he also apologised to his fans because he said he'll be unable to sign autographs at the airport on his arrival due to coronavirus prevention policies. Now, speculation about Lin signing with the Taiwan team began last year amid signs that his career with the Guangzhou Long Lions in the Chinese basketball Association League is waning after his playing time was markedly cut. Lin, of course, built up a huge following here in Taiwan when he brought Lin Sanity to the NBA during his spell with the New York Knicks. Now, news that Lin will be playing for the Steelers sparked keen interest in ticket sales for the team's upcoming games, despite there being no date as to when he'll actually be making his debut. Now, one plus league official told a local cable news sports program that he believes Lin's leadership will prove to be a boost for both the Steelers and the local pro basketball and that his presence in Kaohsiung will help southern Taiwan teams better compete with their northern compatriots. Now the Steelers however are currently languishing at the bottom of the plus league standings and having a truly awful season with only two wins out of 16 games. So Linsanity comes to Taiwan. Yeah, I think
2: uh, people will be quite excited. I mean, Jeremy Lin still has a very large following in Taiwan. So actually, it is, makes sense for him career-wise, I think, in, in terms of that. I mean, there'll be a lot of excitement, uh, whether that will affect actually the game or the ability of the team to win. It's another question, though.
0: I'm excited, too. Uh, most of the foreign players, although we'll come back to that in a moment because he's not being counted as a foreign player, <laughs> but most of the foreign players have been big men. And Jeremy Lin, by NBA standards, is relatively short. I think he's only six five. Uh, he's a journeyman NBA player, and I'm looking forward to seeing what it will look like for a journeyman NBA player who plays guard uh, to be in the uh, Taiwan basketball leagues And certainly the Kaohsiung Steelers could use the extra ticket sales given their crummy season so far. Uh, but I think we have to have—I uh, um, I have limited expectations because Lin's—he's already 34 years old. And at that age, uh, a player of his size who depends on speed and rapid cutting— Uh, is usually not as effective as in his 20s. So um, I think we need to give some allowances, but hope that his experience in the NBA can rub off on some of the other players in Taiwan. It's a good thing.
1: And of course, Brian, he did come here regularly for a few years before the COVID, obviously. He used to come here at least once or twice a year to give seminars and talks.
2: Yeah, that's right. And so he is actually here pretty often comparatively. And so, I mean, just, uh, he also has a sibling that already plays in the uh, leagues, if I believe, uh, if I recall correctly. I just kind of wonder if there'll be another controversy about how much time he sees on the courts, though, as with some other players in uh, recent memory.
1: And of course, Michael, he's not actually a foreign player.
0: That's right. He is a Huayi Yuan, which is a player of ethnic Chinese uh, descent, which is actually a little bit more limited than it sounds. The rules change every season, but this season, uh, the rule in the P League, which he plays in, is that a ethnic Chinese descent player is someone whose one of their parents is an ROC citizen— Uh, and they have not registered household registration by the age of 16. So Jeremy Lin apparently meets both of those criteria. There is a limited number of ethnic Chinese players in the league. However, there are no limits on playing time. And... uh, I think that this whole issue of uh, how many foreign players there can be, how long they can play, this special category of ethnic Chinese, uh, sits uncomfortably with Taiwan's uh, modern commitment to diversity, multiculturalism, and a renewed emphasis on no discrimination.
1: I mean, Brian, do you think there could be a bit of an outcry from fans if he has limited time on the court?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think people will really want to see him play. So there's that. I mean, I think there's expectation. But uh, it's interesting then, because then the discussion doesn't always get always to this uh, place of discussing diversity and what that means and how it's reflected in Taiwanese sports, actually. So I think that's one of the things that's a bit lacking in the discourse at present. I mean, I think people just want to see their favorite player play and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, the other thing that's uh, kind of interesting about the um, situation is that... uh, Will Lin be injured as often as Dwight Howard has been, which could uh, limit his playing time as well? But overall, I'm really excited about it, and I think it's a good thing for Taiwan basketball. There's just one thing. Jeremy, if you're out there listening, don't say anything about politics or being Taiwanese (laughs) or Chinese or being both. Well,
1: he probably won't, actually, will he?
0: I believe he's made a few statements in the past that have (laughs) verged uncomfortably uh, on those issues. One
1: involved his father, I believe. That's part of his anatomy.
0: That's that's correct. (laughs) Uh, You know, Jeremy Lin, uh, I just looked over his Wikipedia page today, and and the amount of racial abuse that he had to put up over over his career during the NBA was horrible. And I just hope that uh, Taiwan's... uh, Political divisions uh, and polarization don't affect his time here in Taiwan when finally he can be free of those issues.
1: And of course, Brian, we had Lin sanity when he played in New York. Of course, this being Taiwan, the Taiwanese fans will probably give it another name.
2: Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I mean, uh, I think there's that. I mean, just it's still interesting, though, that there's so many people that still follow uh, that period and just have, you know, all the old memorabilia and so forth in Taiwan. And so I think people will really hope for a return to that. But uh, yeah.
0: There, there were a few people who are not too happy about the fact that I believe he acquired a Taiwan passport as a national without household registration and then used that to play in china Uh rather than coming to taiwan first so there have been some murmurings out there in some of the darker corners of the internet that he's not really all that popular but i don't think that's true i think he has an enormous reservoir of goodwill and i'm in fact i am actually now determined to go see a game even if i can't buy a ticket to see a jeremy Lin game so (laughs) so that is a positive for the leagues
1: and that's where we'll leave it here this week as Michael rushes out the door to buy his ticket for the Kaohsiung Steelers. And you've been joined, or I rather, I've been joined today in the studio on Taiwan This Week by Brian Hugh. Good night. And by Michael Fahey. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week Podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows.